Today's episode contains explicit language. Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode 11, What to Expect on Tuesday. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. I'm joined for today's episode by my colleague, Chris Parker. Chris is a professor of political science at the University of Washington and director for social science of race and inequality at the Washington Institute for the Study of Inequality and Race. Chris researches and teaches on a variety of topics in American politics, including the study of voting behavior and public opinion, black politics, social movements and civil rights, populism and research methodology. Chris has written numerous journal articles, book chapters and two books, Fighting for Democracy, Black Veterans and the Struggle Against White Supremacy in the Post-War South, and Change They Can't Believe in, The Tea Party and Reactionary Politics in America, co-authored with Matt Barreto. He's currently working on a new book titled, Haven't We Seen This Stuff Before? The Reactionary Right and the Origins of Contemporary Racial Politics. I should also note that Chris regularly appears on national and local television and radio to provide a much needed voice helping the public to interpret contemporary American public life. And that is one of the reasons I'm thrilled to have him as a guest today to help us think about what we should expect in next week's election. Hi, Chris. Hey, hi, hi, James. Hey, it's good, it's good to be here. Hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm working on um, another book. Uh, the third one that you mentioned, I had to set that aside. Uh, so Matt and I are doing something else. It's called um, The Great White Hope, Donald Trump, Race and the Crisis of American Democracy. It should be out early 2022. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. Well, to start us off, let me ask you a simple question. What's, who's going to win on Tuesday and what's going to happen? <laughs> well, I would I would like to uh I would like to mention that I predicted Trump was gonna win last time and nobody believed me. Um I do think, having said that, I do think that if this is a big caveat, I, I'm aware of that that if this election is even remotely fair, right, then Trump is going to get smoked. He's gonna get stomped, he's gonna get fucking skunked. What does that mean? So, so does that mean we should believe the poll numbers? We should believe the turnout projections? We should be hopeful of early voting? I mean, if you're a Democrat. Yeah, um, I think that, I mean, I think the poll numbers, I think this time around, I think the public opinion folks are getting it right. I mean, they're really on top of it. The methodology has changed a little bit, um, um, you know, to do a better job of capturing, you know, cell phone users. I mean, I think that that methodology had, was really good at the time, but I think that people are a lot more sensitive to it now. And and also to account for people who um, say they won't vote for Trump or say or don't commit to it, but that's kind of been baked in to where there's some um there it's baked into the to the cake that there are going to be a certain number of people who won't claim to uh prefer anyone, but they're just going to assume that they're going to vote for Trump because so many of them voted for Trump last time, the late breakers and people who were undecided. Um, so anyway, so the poll numbers, both national and state by state, look look fairly good. And it looks like, you know, uh, Biden is beyond the um, uh, the margin of error um, in some key battleground states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, Texas still looks pretty close. Um, but everything everything looks good. The fact that the Democrats are even trying to contest Texas is a is a really good sign, frankly, um, if you ask me, uh, Florida as well. Um, so, so I, so I think things, things look pretty good where I'm more concerned, you know, are the shenanigans on the ground, you know, when it comes to what the Republicans are trying to do, um, with suppressing the vote and making voting more difficult. 
So what is the effect of that? Because I think, uh, you know, I think in a curious way, that became so politicized a few weeks ago that it may have had the effect of actually mobilizing a lot of people to really pay attention and try to get their votes out. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of late stages inability to, you know, for instance, the decision in Minnesota last night, you know, people are going to have to scramble towards the end. But what is your what is your projection in terms of how that might affect overall turnout and in what states and for whom? Well, I mean, that's a really good question, James. Um, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say right now. Okay, Minnesota clearly clearly is one. Um, I think um, I just read a piece in the uh, New Yorker that said something about in Pennsylvania if uh, you know stalling might actually work to the Republicans' advantage, and that um, the elections have to be certified by you know I forget what I forget exactly what what day it was, but it had to be certified. If they weren't certified. Uh, then these ballots could be segregated and they could be eventually thrown out. Um, the ones that uh, were received um, after, uh, even though they were postmarked, the ones that were received um, after November 3rd. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's it's not clear what direction that's going to eventually go in, but that's Pennsylvania and that's a really key state. Um, and I think you're right, James, and I think there could be some counter mobilization, you know, based on you know, all the shenanigans that the Republicans are trying to pull. But that presumes, however, you know, that, you know, that rank and file Democrats are actually paying attention to that. Well, what's your sense of that? I think that based on 2016, I think that enough people were caught by surprise that they don't want this to happen again. And so I I do believe that I I do believe that the counter mobilization will definitely work. But I'm, I'm but I once again, all the all the you know the the shenanigans are surrounding the Republican Party. I just, I mean, I just don't know, man. I mean, if you start throwing in, you know, the Russian influence and, um, you know, these other, um, you know, foreign interests, I'm just not, just really not confident that all the votes are going to be counted. I think if most of the votes are counted, however, I think Trump is still going to lose. What do you think about this story that Republicans have had a better uh, registration drive since uh, 2016 in certain states, and there might be sort of a disaffected, you know, registered to vote, but hasn't turned out recently, you know, disaffected, perhaps non-college educated white voter who might turn out for Trump in this election? Well, I think that I think that the I think that the Trump voters pretty much maxed out. Right. I mean, I think that I think there's a ceiling effect that might come into play. I think that um, if they didn't, I'd be, I'd be surprised if, if they didn't vote out, if they didn't turn out in 2016, the first time this guy ran, I'm thinking just the way that I'm thinking, thinking is through that there's probably a small benefit, you know, because they know what they're getting now, but I don't think it'll outstrip the benefits that the Democrats will get because of this, you know, the fear and anxiety associated with, you know, another term of Trump. And that's one of the things that I've been saying for quite some time, you know, regardless of whether or not you agree with Republicans tactics or or their uh, policy preferences you got to at least respect the way that they turn out to vote but the, the issue is they turn out to vote based on fear anxiety and anger and that's something the democrats are not accustomed to and i've been saying this a long for a long time the democrats need to scare the shit out of the base well i don't think the democrats need to do it now i think trump did a pretty good job of doing that and so so but to answer your question james i do think there's i, I do think republicans are approaching a ceiling effect uh right now where there's only so much more they can do to turn out the vote. And I just think there's a lot, there's a lot more room for Democrat turnout to grow. 
Well, COVID. I mean, so COVID is a real reason beyond everything else, uh, yeah. a real reason yeah. for everybody to be anxious. COVID to me is, again, one of these weird things where we saw COVID really affecting uh, mobilization and the ability to count votes during the primaries. About a month and a half ago, everybody started kind of talking about it realistically as in-person voting and mail-in started to, to roll out. Um, and I'm wondering if you have a good sense of how COVID now will affect you know, kind of what's going to happen with these this late scramble to get your ballot in on time, whether that means going to a ballot box or, or deciding to vote in person versus what's going to happen on Tuesday with people who have been thinking about voting in person all along, but COVID cases are increasing. Well, but I can tell you, I can tell you this based on some survey data that I've seen, and I don't have the numbers, you know, uh, with any precision in my head right now, but even with COVID, I mean, people, especially, especially people, especially black people, right? The Latino vote, um, you know, they're committed to turning out, but, you know, there are a number of them that that seem like they want to support Trump, especially the Latino males, right? There's a huge gender gap where that's concerned. Um, there's a gender gap uh, with the black community between men, men and women as well. Like last time, 10% of black men voted for Trump. Now, having said that, it doesn't seem like COVID is doing a whole lot to dissuade communities of color from turning out, right? I mean, just based on some of the survey data that, that I've seen. Um, and now if you want to talk about turning out to the polls, right. I mean, it, there, there's a, you know, I'm not too confident in the numbers when it comes to turning out to the polls. Right. Um, but what I am saying is that when it comes to their determination to vote one way or another, I mean, man, I'm telling you right now, Trump poses an existential threat to the black community that I can speak on because I've done some experimental work in that area. Right. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you frame Trump now, let me, let me be clear. This was pre-COVID. This data was collected, you know, at the beginning of this year, right? So this was before COVID really kicked in here. But so what uh, one of my co-authors and I, what we did was we wanted to see what it would take to get the black vote out. And so what we did was we had um, we had two we had two treatments and one control. One treatment was Trump is an existential threat to democracy, right? Then we had the other treatment that Trump was an existential threat to the black community. And then, of course, we had the control. No, actually, we had three conditions. And then another one, the other one was Trump is an existential threat to work the working class, right? And then we had the control. And by far, you know, framing Trump as an existential threat to the black community outperformed the other ones, right? By far, right? So the working class frame didn't work. I mean, I knew that wasn't going to work, right? And I can talk about I can talk about the whole sort of Bernie bro, why I, Please, right? I, I'm primed for that one, right? Um, but that frame didn't work, nor did this Trump as an existential threat to democracy. It was statistically significant, but it came nowhere near the effectiveness as framing Trump as an existential threat to the race. And you're you're talking about black respondents only getting that that yes. frame, or okay, yeah. okay, yeah. I yeah. see. Black. Well, it seems to me, I mean, right now, of course, things could change. All eyes are going to be on urban and suburban Atlanta, uh, obviously Philadelphia, obviously certain cities in Florida where um, you, people may try to vote on Election Day. And so the I mean, it seems like African-Americans are playing an outsized role in this election in terms of the attention that the media is putting putting on the places that they're voting and the difficulties that they're confronting. Yeah. So if you think about it, I mean, so black and brown communities were hardest hit vis-a-vis -vis COVID. Right. And all that did was, I mean, if we want we can talk about COVID, too, if you, if you want, like in race and um, health disparities and stuff like that. If you want to if you want to go 
there as well. But all that, but what that did was black and brown people already knew there were these health disparities, health-based disparities based on, you know, the relative exposure to it, given like, you know, how many black and brown people are quote unquote essential workers. Um, and then plus, you know, we're talking about their housing situations as well. Um, but, but for white folk, it was like, oh my God. And you throw George Floyd on top of that. Right. I mean, so you have this, you know, you have this perfect storm, if you will. Right. So you have this, in some ways they, 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 you know, they work at cross purposes, but in other ways, COVID and, uh, George Floyd and protests, you know, they work in tandem. Right. And so, and, and so one thing on top of the other Right. Especially for communities of color. It's like, oh, my God, man, this is really messed up. Right. But then when you start throwing white people into the mix and how white folks were really exposed to George Floyd and, and the aftermath of that because of covid and, be, and being on lockdown. Right. It was like it was a it was an inflection point. At least that's what it felt like. Right. Now, whether or not it continues to serve as such is an empirical question. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think is really interesting about this election, if we look at kind of from the South Carolina primary until now is Joe Biden is at the top of the ticket, but it seems like this is really the first time that I can think of in my lifetime where it's become very apparent to the Democratic Party that African-American voters are its mobilizing base and that African-American women in particular, even though, you know, you have a, a white man in his 70s at the top of the ticket, but you have Jim Clyburn, Jim Clyburn basically sealed the deal in South Carolina yeah. because after that Biden got it. And then you look at Biden's VP vetting and there's a deep bench of women of color in the Democratic Party. I mean, he there were a lot of talented women who um, who were, you know, apparently vetted who could have appeared on the ticket. But it, it sort of seems like this is now the moment where more white liberal coastal Democrats will sort of make that realization. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point that you brought up, James. I mean, and once again, to refer to the experimental work I did um, with my co-author, Chris Towler, that we showed in, in, our, in our stuff that once you, um, uh, if you look at the effect between black men and black women, black women, even after we account for a host of other covariates, right, they were much more mobilized than black men. I mean, so, I mean, so we could see this with our eyeballs, right? But it actually plays out empirically, even after we account for a host of other, other factors that could affect that relationship. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is it's like, yeah, it's about fucking time. You know, the Democrat at least figured this shit out. Right. It's like for real. Right. They were chasing after working class whites. Fuck that. Right. Working class whites. Let me tell you something, man. This is where the whole populism sort of Bernie bro and all this whole race class thing comes into effect. I rail against this because let me just call it what it is. I know some people are going to get mad at me, but fuck them. They know where to find me. Right. Working class white folks are the most racist white motherfuckers there are. Right. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's about this precarity. Right. Because they're in this precarious position, you know, vis-a-vis -vis people of color. They Because because at that point, all they have is their whiteness. Right. And if we catch up, then that affects how they feel about themselves. Right. This happened in the this happened in the South as well. It it wasn't middle class white folks, you know, or the, you know, or the uh, petty bourgeois. Right. That were the most racist. It was the working class white folks that was the most that were the most racist. Right. And it's always been this way. Right. Always been this way. So when people say talk about this race class narrative, you know, that, oh, yeah, but in theory, it should work. Of course, you know, you have this you should have this collective class consciousness. Right. 
it should work. It worked in the in the mid to late 19th century with the first People's Party, the first populist movement, the original populist movement. It worked then, but then Democrats came in and played the race card, right? Boom, done, right? And we saw how we saw how black folks were effectively written out of the New Deal as well, right? We talk about Social Security, right? Black folks did if you if one was a domestic worker or one who worked in agriculture, which black people did heavily in both, they weren't covered by Social Security. They weren't covered by, yeah, they weren't covered by Social Security. There's another one I'm I'm forgetting about, right? So when you see some white man come around talking about, hey, let's let's kumbaya, let's 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 come together based on class, the shit never works. I think, Chris, in a weird way, tell me if this is wrong. You know, Barack Obama, who was the first, obviously, African-American president, he, in a way, when we think of the Obama coalition, we sort of forget his mobilization of the Black community and the Latino community, because I think we tend to think of the Obama coalition and the magic coming out of his ability to peel away upper middle class white, college educated, urban, suburban, you know, the the types of people who live around Seattle and Denver and and places like that. But people forget his mobilizing capacity of communities of color. And, you know, that was one of Hillary's problems in 2016 is that she didn't sort of wasn't mindful of that enough, at least in specific states that could have put her over the edge. Well, I think she was mindful of that. I mean, I think she tried to surround herself with people in the black community. She certainly got enough uh, celebrity endorsements. Um, I think the problem with Hillary was, you know, for black people of all age categories. Right. I mean, there was something about her that collectively we didn't like. So those of us who are older remember the super predator remark, which is not to say, I mean, like I voted for a right? bunch, bunch of uh, black folks did, to be sure. Um, but she didn't drive turn out the way Barack did. And I think that was a that was a twofold issue. One, it was because, I mean, it's Barack, right? He's the first, you know, black president, right? So you just have that. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be able to match that. Maybe Kamala will, maybe, right? If she ever gets to the top of the ticket. Um, but then you also have this negative affect that's associated with Hillary from, once again, black folks of a certain generation. We remember the super predator thing, right? And then you have black folks of a younger generation that remember the all lives matter thing. And so, yeah, that's that's not conducive to, you know, really energizing the black community. I don't care how many celebrity endorsements she had. Uh-huh. So can I ask you about the Supreme Court and the court cases? Because I think this is very confusing for people who are trying. I mean, it's it's confusing if you're not a constitutional law scholar, but it's also confusing the way it's being covered in the press in the sense that the, the, the Supreme Court is sort of issuing decisions that are really actually narrowly focused on specific points of law that may have a huge effect on the actual outcome of the election. In my read is they're basically saying by their own admission, they, they quote unquote don't wanna get involved now. They basically wanna punt until after election day. And my sense is because if it is a blowout on election day, the court will never have to really adjudicate any of this and therefore they don't, they don't yeah. get drawn into it. But yep. then they're they're leaving that window open um, for whatever may happen after the election if there's court cases. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think your reading is right. You know, nor am I a, a constitutional scholar, but I've been law scholar, but I've been trying to keep up with it as well. And you're right. I think they are trying to punt um, on it, you know, just in case. I mean, look, so Roberts is clearly, well, at least has been apparent to many people, um, you know, that he's really concerned about the legitimacy of the court um, moving forward. And that's even going to be harder now, you know, since Amy Coney Barrett, you know, has been added to the court um, and and the court is just taking and taking on an increasingly political tone. 
Um, so I so I think so I think to the extent that he has anything to do with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, I do think he's going to try to preserve legitimacy of the court and they are going to continue to try to punt on these decisions unless unless and until, you know, it's it's a contested election. And then if it gets to the Supreme Court. Right. Then, I, you know, I, I think your interpretation is right. My concern, however, is that if it does get to the Supreme Court and and the Supreme Court comes down on the side of uh, the idiot in chief, then, oh, my gosh, um, I, I, I don't even know. And that's something maybe you're you're waiting to discuss about, you know, about, you know, what's going to happen, you know, post-election, depending on who wins. And yeah, I, I definitely have a take on that. Yeah. But yeah. OK. OK. Um, so I, so I think I think in the short term, frankly, um, it doesn't really matter who wins in the short term, because the other side is not going to see whoever prevails as legitimate. Um, and and I, I, I really think that's going to be a problem. And, you know, Trump has laid the groundwork, you know, for trying to delegitimize the election results, you know, should he lose. Um, and he's been doing a really good job of that. I grudgingly admit that, but he really has been. And um, and so if he somehow loses, um, then I think, you know, people or uh, organizations and, you know, and people who are supportive of Trump or sympathetic to him, I think they're going to mobilize. Right. And I think, you know, and, you know, militias are sympathetic to him. And so I think there could be, you know, a soft civil war, if you will. Nothing on the order that we saw, you know, back in the 19th century. But there's going to be a lot of a lot of urban strife. There's going to be some violence in the streets. I, I can guarantee you that. Um, and even if it swings the other way. Right. If, you know, if Trump somehow. Well, it's just no way he's going to win legitimately. Right. I, I just I, I just think so. There there are not a whole lot of scenarios outside of no matter what happens, James, this country is going to be a shit show for a long time. Right. It's going because and here's why I say this, James, it's because before Trump won. Right. Won. And I see that with air quotes um, before he won. Um, progressive whites didn't really see, you know, all the people um who were Trump supporters, right? Or who were people that wanted the country to go backwards in time to recapture its quote unquote national greatness, right? They didn't realize they um, maybe some maybe some of them realized they were out there, but they didn't realize there were that many, right? But the people on the right who were Trump supporters have always seen, you know, the progressive legions, right? They've always been visible to them, but it hadn't worked the other way around. Now it works the other way around. Both sides see each other clearly now. Right. And I would imagine, you know, that effective polarization is only going to increase. Right. We, you know, we think it's capped out, but based on what happens after this election, it's going to get even worse. Right. And that's going to be followed by a period of serious civil strife. I promise you that that is going to happen one way or the other. So and I think we're going to be in this shit show for at least I'm saying at least 10 years. Right. At least 10 years. This is not going to go away soon. Right. I think in the long run, however, James, like the long durée, 15, 20 years, I think the country would be much better off. In fact, if we survive this shit, I think Trump will have been a net good for the country because it brings all of these divisions to the surface. Right. One can no longer be gaslit. One is a person of color. If one is uh, uh, an immigrant, if one is a woman, if one is gay, I mean, We've all been gaslit. Like, oh, are you sure sexism is still happening? Are you sure that's racism over there? Are you sure? Well, yeah, motherfucker, I'm sure. You can see this shit now, right? We can all see it now. We have Exhibit A, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. How can we avoid that? 
Well, Chris, let me push back though, because a lot of this was came to the surface in the 1960s. I mean, with civil rights, with 19, you know, with Vietnam and all that, and then you get the rise of Reagan in 1980. So, okay, so I think that's that's a good point. But the thing is, there wasn't there there wasn't this sort of naked. I mean, back then, you know, we had the dog whistle stuff happening, law and order, right? It wasn't straight up racism. It wasn't straight up sexism, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you had all of that going on. We get Reagan. Reagan is a function of it's the culmination of the uh, post-war conservative movement. Right. So we had uh, what's my man's name who founded National Review? Bill Buckley Jr. Right. Founded National Review in 1955. Right. Which served. And, and let me describe what post-war conservatism was. Post-war conservatism um, uh, put together three strands uh, of what was going on on the right. You had this sort of religious conservatism, right? You had this sort of business conservatism, right? And you also had this national security conservatism, right? Now the business and and the religious or more traditional conservatism, they don't really, they don't really cohere really well because business conservatism or something closer to libertarianism is really about, you know, the atomized individual in society, right? Well, the religious conservatism or tra more traditional conservatism is more about the community, right? We all need to learn our place, our respective places in the community, right? We need to get in where we fit in, right? These two things don't necessarily go together. But you know what made them go together is a Soviet threat, right? Because the Soviets were against religion or they were they were secular, right? Number one, so there was fear associated with they that. They were atheists. So they, were atheists. they were atheists. Yeah. Right. Okay. No, you're right. That I don't want to <laughs> I mean, go that take far. Take their word. I don't know I, if that's okay, true. Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to go that far. But yeah. <laughs> so they were atheists, right? And you know they were socialists, right? Which runs completely counter, yeah. you know, to this small government. You, you know, so everything so, in American life is not not God and not socialism for sure. I mean, God. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so and so it embodied both of these threats. Right. And the national security conservatives brought both of them into this into their camp. And that's what post-war conservatism was. Right. And it was held together by the Soviet threat. Right. And so you get so you get. Um, so Nixon loses in 1960. Right. Um, Goldwater was actually supposed to run in 1960. Right. But he put it off to 1964. Right. And so when you had this identification of the Democrat Party, you know, with racial prog uh, progressivism or racial liberalism, if you will, um, which made Goldwater, which, that's what Johnson did. And Goldwater came back and countered with the Republican Party that went uh, that adopted a more uh, racially regressive stance. And that's pretty much where we've been. But the thing is, and so that eventually led to the Reagan revolution. And because we had in the 1960s, right. The whole law and order thing that the Republicans, you know, were using as a dog whistle. First it was Goldwater, then it was Wallace, then it was Nixon, right? Uh, that eventually led to Reagan, right? Because you had this backlash, this quote unquote white backlash. I hate that term, but it is what it is. This white backlash to the to the urban crisis. I refuse to call them riots uh, because I think you know all of these are political terms. The urban crisis that happened. Because white people were like, hey, you guys got what you wanted in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. So why are you guys complaining? Uh, well, this stuff didn't apply beyond the South because the South was so, you know, was so repressive. Right. That the South needed that kind of 
big state federal government intervention. But beyond the South, you didn't have uh, de jure segregation like you had in the South, right? De jure meaning by law, right? You had de facto segregation, meaning by custom. So all this stuff was still going on. Segregation by custom. Discrimination, um, uh, you know, which was part of segregation, right? All of this stuff was happening outside of the South, but that was not addressed by these by this legislation. And so people got pissed off, right? And, and, and in response to police brutality, Detroit, New Jersey, Los Angeles, right? People fought back. The black community fought back, and that scared white folks, right? So you get this backlash. Reagan eventually gets into office. He adopts, you know, he brings on along the moral majority, right? I mean, I, I don't want to get into, into, into the weeds on all this stuff, right? But the bottom line is we didn't see uh we didn't see now we don't we don't see we didn't see then what we're seeing now this naked animosity right it wasn't about dog whistle politics right this right now this is about hey we we don't like black people right we you know shithole countries and all this stuff uh grabbing pussies right and all that we didn't hear any of this stuff back then this is a frontal assault on marginalized groups you didn't get that back then that's why this time is different Right. It's, it's just different this time. So, so let me ask you, Chris. I mean, I think a way, tell me if I'm wrong, but a way to characterize what you're saying is the, the country has had this gaping wound called racism. And over time, it sort of put different versions of Band-Aids on that and maybe helped it a little bit, but not sort of really dealt with it. And now sort of the, uh, the, the Band-Aid is totally off. It's a gaping wound and it has to be dealt with. That's my, right. question, my question, though, is doesn't then, if you're thinking about when you, you were talking about 10 years, 15 years, doesn't it then matter a great deal for whether or not Trump actually is reelected or Biden is reelected? And I guess in, in a way, I'm more curious to hear your answer about what happens if Biden is elected, how 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 this will all get sorted out and the contours it'll take. So I think I think, well, if Biden's only a one term president, I mean, I think that um, I mean, it's still going to be a train wreck, you know, during his presidency. Right. I think, I think, and hopefully if Kamala runs and wins, right. Um, hopefully, I mean, I think, I, I think she has a good chance. Right. I think it can start to be sorted out on her watch. I think, right. Um, I, I think she'll actually be, if you ask me, I know some people get mad at me for saying this, but I actually think she'll be a better president than Obama was because Obama didn't really start figuring it out till maybe halfway through his second term. Right. Uh, that he was just not going to get anything done. You know, he believed in this sort of hagiography, you know, that, you know, he could he could heal all wounds and bind the, up the country together. And get Halfway Congress to work with him. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly where I'm going. That's exactly where yeah. I'm going, man. Imagine, imagine the executive branch thinking the legislative branch was there to uh, negotiate <laughs> pass legislation. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think he finally figured that out, right? Um, but I think Kamala, because frankly, Kamala was raised in the continent of the United States. Barack was not. He was raised um, for the first part of his life, as far as I know, with uh, in in Hawaii uh, with his white grandparents, and then he moved to Indonesia, right? Indonesia, yeah. That's not the same kind of upbringing that most of us as black men get, right? So he's not going to be as suspicious of white folks as the rest of us are, right? And Kamala's the same way, right? 
Granted, she's married to a white man. Okay, all right, whatever. But right. She, she grew up in Oakland. <laughs> you know, she grew up in Oakland. Not, not right. She grew up in Oakland. Yeah. Went to Howard. You know, was an AKA. Right. She she knows what's up. Right. And I think she'll be much closer to uh, Michelle than she would be to Obama in in the way that she would run stuff. Well, so let me. I I uh, I was in California when Kamala was really gaining prominence, and then when she ran for attorney general. And you know, ten years ago, I said she seems to me like the kind of black woman that white people feel comfortable with. And I I can't explain why because I still think she um, she has the the trope of the angry black woman for a lot of white men is is still being played on her and still probably working but i think it yeah. also may have been the fact that she does kind of come from a law enforcement background and so yeah. white people perceive that as a strength in sort of yeah. straddling the divide right she doesn't really come I, I mean she does come from a civil rights background but in a way that white voters are comfortable with is that, which is that she was in you know sort of the 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 judiciary Agree. No, I, to- I totally agree. You know, her serving as first as DA and then as attorney general, that does that does, if you will, take some of the edge off, if you will. Right. Yeah. I think I, I think I think you're right about that, James. I think you're right about that. But she still has that ability to appeal to black folks. Right. Because, I mean, I would never have guessed, you know, that she was, you know, that she was half Indian or South Asian. I would have never guessed that she just looks like a light skinned black woman to me. Right. And that's how most people see her. Right. And and as you know, right, as someone who does studies identity, too, we assume we adopt the identity generally of the way in which other people see us. Right. Because we have to interact with that every day. Right. And so, yeah. And so I think she sees herself as a black woman because she's been treated that way. Well, the other thing about her in particular, and, you know, this is just my completely subjective perception is. Uh, Chris, do you remember, was it the cover of The New Yorker in 2008 where they did the, the? it was meant to be ironic, the trope of the Obamas and Michelle was done up to be like Angela saw, Davis with an afro yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I think it doesn't really work with Kamala because she is a happy warrior. Like she has that kind of, she's still very personable. She's great in a crowd. And I think that was clear on the debate stage. She was both like very t- tough on Pence, but she she seems like she actually enjoys the business of campaigning and politics in ways that I think you can't get away. You can't simply write her off as, you know, oh, she's just angry. She's just, you know, all all of the tropes that white people use against black women. I think she still is smiling and shaking hands. She's just good at that type of politics. Okay. Maybe. Okay. Maybe out in the hustings. Yeah. But during that debate, the look she gave Pence, I've been on the receiving end of those looks a lot of times in my life with both my wives, right? I know what that means, right? <laughs> so 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 there are many of us that were like, yep, she's down. She's yep, this is yep, this, she's one of us. Well, I'm sure every time you deserve the look though. I mean, that's the thing. Oh, I know what no, I, oh, I didn't say I didn't deserve it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying I'm familiar with it. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you about violence. There's a lot of um you know, I like to remind people that election violence actually was a very common theme. I mean, both over intimidation, but actual campaign violence, election day stuff, uh, you know, 1700s, 1800s, really until the progressive era, the women women start voting. And so it becomes a little bit taboo. 
but people are really talking about like actual pre-election and election day violence for the first time, I think in a while. Is that a concern at all for you? Um, is Where are we likely to see that? Is it gonna be a widespread problem? You know, I think it just really depends on where it is. I mean, um, I think maybe in some battleground states or swing states, it could be a problem. Um, uh, and when I say swing, I mean, you know, states that might flip to blue, right? So we're talking about maybe Georgia, Arizona, maybe some in Texas. I mean, you know, where you have these these open carry laws, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, for real, right? I mean, it, it, it maybe not necessarily out and out violence, but certainly the the threats of violence, right? Um, but both sides are mobilizing pretty well. I mean, you have there was a call. My best friend, who's a cop, um, um, he's going to go to Arizona because they've had a call out in Arizona, you know, for people who are either law enforcement or attorneys, right? To do poll watching. Yeah. And so I think I, you know, I think threat. I think I think there's, there's going to be some tense times at the polls, right? Um, but I don't really think there's going to be widespread violence at all. I think it'll be more tense in red states that that may flip to blue. How much do you think if this goes to a post-election mess and you were talking about, you know, really the between November 3rd and the inauguration being tense, how much of the Black Lives Matter and the protest and mobilization around racial justice do you think will play into that in the sense that, you know, people on the left, particularly communities of color, are mobilized, but mo I mean, mobilized recently. They've they've they know how to conduct a protest under COVID. They know how to do it peacefully. They know how to do it legally. Um, and there's just kind of this, and that, and that all I think got put aside a little bit, like put on hold as we wait to see the election. But it sounds like that's a like that valve needs a release somehow if this gets contentious. I think it. I think it will. I think if I think if Trump tries to steal the election, I think you will see. I think there will be some widespread mobilization, right? And I and I don't think it's necessarily going to be peaceful, right? There, there's a. There's a there's a black group in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, who has armed themselves. And I, I, I don't recall the numbers. Right. But but they were I think this was maybe last month. Right. They put on a large, a pretty large scale demonstration of marching in Atlanta. I mean, they had AR-15s, too. Right. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, look, I mean, black people. That, that's when white Americans start to look at that Second Amendment again and think about. Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait well, a minute. It's a, it's a well-regulated militia when it's right, us, right, right. Black hey, let me are you. not a well-regulated militia. It, no, exactly. The street with an AR-15. That's it, that doesn't sound well-regulated to me. Exactly. When they descended on on Sacramento in the 1960s, right? You know, with their shotguns and M16s. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was a problem back then, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so no, black people have guns too. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, as a, as a political scientist, you know, one of the things I've been trying to uh, trying to game out, and and I'm interested because you've done really groundbreaking work on the Tea Party and the origins of the Tea Party and, and the wave of the Tea Party in 2010. So, I'm already trying to think. Okay, let's say Biden and Harris win pretty pretty overwhelmingly. Democrats maybe add seats in the House, maybe add seats in the Senate, but definitely get above 50. What happens in the first two years and what is going to be the reaction to the, you know, their attempts to address COVID, the economic crisis and race in 2022? If we're thinking going wow. back to what the reaction was to what the Democrats and Obama were able to do uh, between, you know, basically early 2009 and then the 2010 
midterm elections. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I mean, so look, I think, I don't think the reaction is going to be at, you know, that's a really good question, James. I mean, on the one hand, I want to say the reaction is not going to be as thoroughgoing and um, as powerful as it was to Obama because Obama winning was actually a surprise to a lot of these folks, um, much like Trump winning was a surprise <laughs> to a lot of folks. Um, so I think I don't I don't think the backlash is going to be as big because because this is what I really believe that, you know, this reactionary wing of the Republican Party is maxed out. I think that the, I, I really think they're pretty close to maxed out, James. And I don't think th there's any more that they can do right in a real substantive, meaningful way. I think that if the Republican Party, if they look well, they're not going to get the House back. They'll probably lose the Senate. It won't it won't be a filibu uh, filibuster proof majority. But I think it's going to start moving in that direction. Right. Twenty twenty four. Right. Um, I, th I think that they're pretty much done. Right. I think the damage that Trump has done in the Republican Party is irreparable. And you know what's going to happen? Because there's going to be a people. I mean, first of all, Trump is just not going to go into that, go off into that good nighter. Right? You know, he's not going to do that. He's going to tweet from the sidelines. You know, he is unless he chokes on the steak between now and then. He's going to tweet from the sidelines. Right. For a while. And he and so he's going to still be able to maintain some semblance of party discipline from the sidelines. Right. And so and, be, and because people have seen that his playbook works. Right. There are going to be some people that try to adopt that playbook. Right. And then that's just going to mobilize more people on the, on the left or progressives, because I don't think we're near maxed out on the left. I don't think so we're near. Think, it. So you think if, if Trump loses, I mean, let's just forget, like, forget about what his off ramp is at this point. If it's a one way flight to Saudi Arabia or he's right. indicted and is it whatever. But just putting right, that right. aside. You right. don't think the Republican Party sort of does a reckoning and a cleaning that nope. quickly because he'll nope. he'll continue to tweet, be in media, yep. be out there and yep. mobilizing the base for the McConnells and the yep. and uh, yep. the Rubios and Cruises and Haley's yep. looking forward to 2024. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He's a, yeah, he's a, he's a, but he's isn't a, a better guy. idea just to kind of say, look, we're sorry. I mean, like. It is a better idea. It is, I mean, just it for the part, I mean, I, I mean, it's not for me to weigh what the Democrats and Republicans should do, but just for the sake of a political party, I think sort of, you know, getting that out of your system is usually a good thing, right? I mean, Democrats had to do it after 1965, right? If they were victory, yeah. They had to realize where their future lied. It wasn't with Southern white racists anymore. Well, well, isn't that what the Republicans were supposed to do after 2012? They didn't do it. Yeah, did that's, true, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, I think the issue, though, is because they learned a different strategy, which was just slow, slow everything down in the legislature to basically make the executive uh, 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 looking like an imperial president on the one hand, but essentially feckless on the other. And then nothing gets done or nothing gets done at the level of expectation. And then people are just like, well, screw the system. I'm just going to vote against anything because at this point, nothing seems to matter. and Nothing, nothing seems to get done. Yeah, but but again, but remember that memo that was circulated by the Republican Party about trying to you know be a, become a more big tent party, right? After Romney lost, right? That was supposed to happen, and it didn't, right? Because Obama was still in office, right? And that was much okay. So look, that was more about you know we don't want this black president to get any wins. It didn't matter whether or not it made sense when it came to policy or helping their constituents, right? Because and think about it like this. And this is one of the things that Matt and I have been saying for a long time. People wanted to say, oh, you know, it's all about 
the economics, economics. What about all these farmers that are getting screwed by Trump's tariff policies, right? They're still with him, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about material self-interest, right? That's not what this is about. And Trump is going to continue to mobilize this symbolic self-interest, this idea that we are losing our country. He's going to continue to mobilize that shit from the sidelines, right? And he's going to continue to discipline the Republican Party, right? And they're going to keep running these. You know, people are going to pick up on this, man. They're going to they're going to try to, you know, uh, adopt the Trump playbook, and it's just going to continue to marginalize the Republican Party. Well, then, so where are the kind of the national security conservatives going to go? The Lincoln Project, the sort of you know the you know I'm not saying Mitt Romney the person, but the sort of you know low taxes, uh, low regulation, but otherwise kind of moderate. Where are those voters going to go uh, after this election? I mean, if we trust I that think, they're actually going to vote for Biden, which they say they are, um, but I, I wouldn't. I, well, you know, I think a, I'm thinking really about the Lincoln point. Project and. The, yeah, the, yeah, no, no, th- no, those guys probably will, right? But you have these hardcore Republicans, you know, who are just so attached to the party that I don't think they, I don't think they would could see themselves voting for Biden. I think they'll just sit it out, right, until the party gets its act together, right? And, and I don't know. I think 2024, I mean, I think 2022, I think it's, man, I think the Dems are going to retake the Senate. 2024, it's all over. Republican Party is going bye bye for a long time. They're gonna they they're, they're gonna they're gonna be in the same position they were from what the 1930s to the 1970s roughly, damn near in a permanent minority. Well, I mean, it took the Democrats until you know so I, I can't remember who said it, but it was the Republicans were running against Jimmy Carter up until 1992. You know, they were able to sort of use that 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 the, the stink of Jimmy Carter to run against the Democrats from 1980 to 1992. It seems to me Republicans are very short-sighted if they think the, the stink of Trump is going to be gone by 2024. I think oh it's going to a long time. Yeah, but what, but what I'm saying is but they're going to be too scared to run away from him Yeah, because he's just going to turn from the sidelines, right? Yeah. That's all he's going to do. Somebody's going to give him a massive contract. I don't know if it's Fox or maybe he starts his own network, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to hammer away at these Republicans, man. Well, I think, you know, I predicted, I think what's going to happen is I think a lot of the money for his media empire could come from abroad. Um, and it's going to hurt Fox News, because why would you watch Fox News when you can watch the real thing? That's yeah. He's going to have a hostile takeover, essentially, whether it means <laughs> that they buy OAN or launch their own thing. You know, it's it's going to be interesting because why? Yeah. Why would you watch Fox if you can watch Trump? Because the only reason you watch Fox now is because, you know, that Trump watches it and they know that he watches it. Yeah, but fi- yeah, but yeah, but it, I think it would take a while for Trump to to steal enough viewers away from Fox really to hurt them. I mean, it would. I mean, because they just have such brand name recognition right now, right? Fox take a while. I mean, I mean, look at what happened to Glenn Beck, right? <laughs> I mean, so where is he now? He's on some cable, like I don't yeah, know where yeah. he is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Chris, I thought I would end kind of big picture because, you know, you not only study kind of contemporary politics and populism, you have a very, uh, a very well-informed understanding in your research of historically that path through American history. You've also studied sort of the rise of populism in Europe and other countries. Kind of big picture, where do you see the trajectory of democracy generally in the United States? And are you afraid of democratic backsliding and further erosion of institutions? Or do you think this has just been kind of a stress test that will that the United States will come out of a lot stronger? I think eventually we'll, we'll come out of it stronger. 
but not in the short term. I think it'll take a while to get beyond this. I think that, I mean, there's been some recent work. I mean, so think about it like this, man. Like, this is just really ironic because this country was essentially built on racism, right? It, it was literally built on racism, right? Now, uh, this country is going through its worst stress test, as you say, um, since the Civil War, which was based on slavery, right? Trying to eradicate slavery, but not for the moral reasons, but just because, you know, just because it was unfair competition. Right. But let's leave that aside for right now. Um, and I think it's it's going into a decline for right now because of racism, because racism, um, among other things, there are other things that uh, put Trump in office. But it was really centered on racism and more recent work on effective polarization suggests that racism is the most important division in society. Right. And so. And so I think it's a really ironic situation that we're in because of racism. Country was built on racism. Country's on a decline because of it. Right now, having said that, um, I do think that in the short term, it's going to be hard. In the long term, I think democracy will rebound. But I don't think for people to say, oh, I want it to go back to the way it was. That's not something that I desire. Right. Because people like me didn't have it so good. You know, I mean. Okay, don't get me wrong, relative to other people, but I'm saying people like, you know, people of color, right? Um, you know, um, women, right? Feminists, especially, right? Um, you know, people who are in alternative lifestyles, right? People, you know, who are immigrants, right? Especially from south of the border. It wasn't so good for us, right? So when every, anybody, we used to say, um, we want to get back to the good old days when America was great. Well, when the fuck was America great for everybody, right? It never was. Right. So we can't go back to the status quo. Right. There are enough people who think like me who don't want to go back to the status quo. So I think American democracy will 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 see it'll be a more real authentic democracy when it does. If you were to if you were to say there's one thing that is the you know specific thing that a new administration could do to make progress in that direction, what would it be? I would say, you know, a lot of, okay, so a lot of people might say something like criminal justice reform, which is, which is important, right? I don't gainsay that, but I would say that we need to swing for the fences. And I think that would look like reparations. I think a reparations bill, I think getting reparations through Congress, I think having a president sign a reparations bill. Great. Well, Chris Parker, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.